Well, if you have a Bible, we're going to get back in Galatians if you want to turn to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. I'm going to read the first seven verses there in Galatians 4. Paul writes, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. And Father, we thank you, Lord, once again for your word, an opportunity to hear your word. I ask you'll give us hearts and ears that are open to receiving what you have to say. And we thank you, Lord, that you'll ingrain it in us, that you have adopted us as your children. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. We're going to begin looking at the doctrine of adoption. I'm not going to finish this week. I know that. I'd like to just begin in saying, you know, how important is the doctrine? Because for a long time, theologians kind of classified adoption and justification and kind of threw it all in there and they didn't make a big deal about it. But I think it is a big deal. And if we look at our text, Paul clearly states that it's the fundamental reason that our Lord Jesus Christ came to earth. If you look back at what we read, but look at verses four and five, it says, but when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. And it says that we might receive the adoption as sons. So think about that. Why is he saying, why did Jesus come? He's telling us from the glories of heaven. And why was he birthed? We're coming into that time of year. You can't get away from it. But why was he birthed in a stinking manger to a virgin, a little virgin girl? And why did he have to submit to the law of Moses Submit to that, not only submit to obeying it perfectly, but also to taking the penalty for those of us that had broken it. Why did he do all that? Why was he willing to pay that great price? And that is what that that is all about. And I've said it many times, but those that's are purpose words. He did all that, what it says there, God sent his son into this world, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem, pay the price for those who are under the law. That, the purpose was that we... I think Paul's throwing everybody in there that's a Christian himself. I mean, there's a bit of awe and wonder in that when he's saying that we might receive the adoption as sons. Jesus wasn't like the elder brother between the prodigal and the elder brother because the elder brother was jealous because the prodigal came home after wasting all of his inheritance on riotous living. And Jesus isn't like that about us. Like we're the ones that basically he's God. We spit in his face. It's his law. It's, you know, all of that. And yet he's not in any way jealous or envious of us that we wasted the life that he has given us. He's our creator. But he's willing, just the opposite, he's willing to sacrifice his own life because he loved us, you and me, and wanted us to be his brothers and sisters. Hebrews 2 says this, here am I, this is the Lord Jesus speaking in and saying, here am I in the children whom God has given me. And it says, inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death 
he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren. So the Lord considers us his brothers and sisters. Had to be made like unto his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He considers us his, his brother. I mean, that's something else. Jesus loves us if you're a Christian with the love that David had for Jonathan. No envy, no jealousy, a true desire. He wants us to know the love of his heavenly father as he did, just as he did. And that's what he prays. You know, John 17, it's a good prayer to study. There's a lot there. You could be teaching for weeks on that. But John 17 is high priestly prayer where he prays for not only his apostles, but he says, I'm going to pray for all those down the road that hear their word and believe. But he says this in that prayer in John 17. He says, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me that they may be one as we are. And he goes on to say, the glory which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfect in one. And listen to what he says here. And that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. So that's a fact that if you're a Christian, if you're a child of God, he loves you as he loved the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, that's a fact. But we have to have our eyes open to that, don't we? I mean, there's things that can be facts about Christians that they just don't see yet. And that's why Paul has that prayer. I believe it's Ephesians chapter three. He prays for them. He says on his knees that they may be able to comprehend. It's just not something that comes to us. It's a revelation. The love of God, the height, the depth, the breadth. That's something we have to know. And he says you actually have to have spiritual strength to be able to receive that revelation. It's that critical. But he wants us to know and demonstrate to the world that the father loves us as he loved him. And the father loved his son perfectly, didn't he? And when we're in him, he loves us with the same love. Now, we're not his eternal son in that sense. There's only one like him. But we are his adopted sons, true sons of God. And that's why we, we read this scripture last week. The Apostle John wants us to meditate on the great love that the Father has for us and marvel on it. And that's why he says, behold, look what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we, there again is that we should be called the children of God. We were birthed, regenerated by his word and his spirit. He could have done that, though, and not necessarily brought us into his family. He could have forgiven us, justified us, given us a new nature. Adoption is separate from regeneration. But he did that. He regenerated us, made us by nature his son, but also brought us into his family. That is what he says. We've been adopted to his family. What a privilege. J.I. Packer said this. You sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. He says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. 
If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, Packer says it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. I'm talking about what is the importance of this doctrine of adoption to understand it, to think about it, to meditate it, to get it down in your spirit. It's crucial because that's the heart of how you're going to have security as a Christian. It's also understanding that you are a child of God and his father that's going to be the motivation for holiness. That's first Peter one, isn't it? And it's the ground. If you want to have faith and you want to have peace, that's the ground of that. You know, you think about the whole Sermon on the Mount, it's really dealing with your relationship to God as your father. You give in secret. Why? Because you have this relationship with your father. You want him to be pleased with you. You fast not so that people can see you, but that your father will be pleased with you. Right. And on and on. And if he's our father, just like my kids don't worry about where their next meal is going to come from or if our heat's going to get shut off. They know that I'm going to take care of them as their father. They're not going to have to sleep outside. I might tease them that they're going to have to sleep outside, but I haven't done that yet. But I think a lot of times, if we're honest, I think we struggle with whether God may just be putting up with us and might be considering canceling our adoption papers. People struggle with that more than they would admit. So back in the spring, I saw this 2010. This was a few years ago, eight years ago, a woman by the name of Tori Hansen. She'd adopted a seven-year-old Russian boy. And she put him on a plane by himself, heading to Russia, carrying a note that's explaining she just couldn't handle him. And she told her mother she wanted a child that she could love, but she didn't find that love in this boy that she adopted from Russia. She'd adopted him. She'd promised to love him for life, but she's sending him back with a note saying, no, I don't want this kid. CNN quoted one expert on adoption that this American mother had returned her own son, because once you adopt a child, that's what they are. They are your own son or daughter. She had returned her own son to Russia like a pair of pants that didn't fit. I thought that was a pretty good description of what happened. And when that happened at the time in the news back then, Russia was hot. And the Russian foreign minister informed the United States Department of State that all adoptions on Russian children were going to be immediately put on hold. This was back then. I don't, it didn't stay. And they were third in the country. Russia was third of the countries that were a source for U.S. adoption. So their pride was wounded. And the international community was outraged because here's this image, this picture of this little boy being sent back on a plane to a rough Russian orphanage, rejected by someone that had agreed to adopt him. It's just a bad scene. So this woman... Tori Hansen said the boy had psychiatric issues and she couldn't handle him, so she sent him back. Her own son. And what she didn't realize that once she adopted that boy, he's not a product from Amazon that you can return in 90 days. That's not the way it works because he is legally and morally her son. So adoption is an event that you go through once. It's not a state you remain in. God, it applies to us. He makes us his sons and daughters through adoption, but we are not forever adopted sons, are we? We're real sons. We have his nature, his spirit, his name, his love. 
And once the Bible says this, there is a security to the believer. Once we've been adopted into God's family, we don't have to fear being sent back. One writer said this, the wonder of the gospel of Jesus Christ is this. Not one of us is worthy of adoption. In our sinfulness, not one of us has any claim on the Father's love, much less a right to adoption. But the infinitely rich mercy of God is shown us in Christ, in whom believers are adopted by the Father. And this adoption, thanks be to God, is eternal and irreversible. Romans 8. It talks about adoption. I'm sure we'll talk about it quite a bit, but it says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God. We've got God. That's what eternity is going to be. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified in him. You're like, why did you have to throw in that last part? Because that's what the word says. I'm sorry to write it. It's reading the whole thing. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So there's a theologian, he's a conservative evangelical theologian, a very good theologian, but he's also somebody that was adopted as a child, adopted by his aunt. And so he's got a little insight to this, adds a little bit of flavor to what he's writing about the theology of adoption. And he said this, adoption is not a process. Adoption is not an identity. Adoption is a singular, non-repeatable, unilateral event based on Love, choice, sacrifice, and law, which binds the parties forever by an authoritative decree. That is also with God in us and in the secular realm. It applies to both. He goes on to say, I was placed. I knew that I was not given up. I was placed. I was placed to become a son with a home and a name and a new life. I am not an adopted person, that's not my identity from here on out, he says, rather I was adopted. The Greek word for adoption, it's a compound word. Huios, it's Huios is son, and Tithomi is to place. And so the Holy Spirit chose a word that's not technically a word adoption, that's how it's translated adoption, because that's what it means. Because the word he picked means the placing of a son or a child. That's what it means to place a son. But it further means into a welcoming family. So God took us out of a family that's dysfunctional, the devil's family, right? That's what we all were part of. That's what we all grew up in. And he placed us in God's family. Amen. In a loving, welcoming family. (laughs) And this man went on to say this, this man Milton He says, my father's sister, my Aunt Eva, adopted me when I was orphaned as a young child. The proposal came before a judge and he made his authoritative ruling and placed me in the arms of Aunt Eva legally, just as I had been physically placed in her arms before that. By the judge's word, the law of the land was applied to the love and choice of my aunt. And in one decree, one moment, 
from the ashes of my story and the desire and prayers of my Aunt Eva's story, a childless 65-year-old widow, a new story began, our story together. And he says this, once the story was settled, she never referred to me as her, quote, adopted son. When she spoke to others about me, I was just her boy, her son, her child, just like other children placed by God into this or that family. She reared me as her son, loved me as her son, wept over me when I was her prodigal son, and prayed for her son to return to God. The day finally came when she saw the answer to her prayer and rejoiced over her saved son. And so the point is this, is we know what adoption, family adoption should be like, not because men invented it, but because God from all eternity has chosen to adopt all of his children. All of his children are going to attend, be in heaven, were adopted at one point. Because none of us, I say this all the time, don't I? But we need to hear it because you're not going to hear it most places. But we are not naturally, quote unquote, naturally his children, are we? Because look here, you're still there. Look in verse 5. It says to redeem those who were under the law that we might what? Receive. We had to receive it. It wasn't something we naturally had. We had to receive the adoption of sons. But once we do, once that happens, we're part of the heavenly family. Paul says in Ephesians 2.19, So then you are no longer strangers or aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Amen. So at one time, none of us in here were part of God's family. Not part of the members of his household at all. He was our creator, but he wasn't our father. We talked about that last week. Then we'll go through that again. But... Once that happens, we're no longer strangers and aliens. We're part of the household of God. That's something to rejoice about. It really is. It's a blessing. Here's the thing we need to see. God's purpose from Genesis to Revelation is to have a people, men and women, who are restored. That's what salvation is all about. That's what Genesis to Revelation is all about, how God restored his children back to where they are restored to the image he created them to be. And that's why it says he's bringing us back to the image and likeness of God, who is Jesus. Those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. He's not just the only one that's going to be glorified and holy. It's going to be many brothers that are up there and, and his brothers. So heaven's going to be a place that's inhabited by innumerable multitudes of brothers and sisters who are fully manifesting the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ through them. You're not going to lose your personality, but the glory of God is going to shine through the way we are and also our redeemed bodies. We say that's one thing it says we're waiting for the adoption of our bodies. That's, so some of it we receive now, this adoption, and some is going to be manifested later. Like a lot of things, some you get now, and some is going to be fully realized in the eternal state. That's the way it'll be. So, you know, you think about this. When God made covenants with Noah, with Abraham, with Moses, and with David, his covenants were always this, that God will be their God and they will be his people. The covenant is, I will be a father to you and you will be my children. That's the covenants that he would make. And so when John sees the new Jerusalem descending out of heaven in the book of Revelation, it says this, and I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, 
Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. So God dwelling in the midst of his once adopted children for all eternity, men and women from every tribe, nation, and tongue, from everywhere they'll be, not just America, obviously. God as his loving Father through all eternity, that is what heaven will be. That'll be heaven. Look back at our text in Galatians. Look at the end of chapter 3, verse 29. Look what it says there. And it says, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Paul's telling us if we're united to Christ by faith, we are Abraham's seed. And we don't need to keep the law to do that. That's what he's been explaining in chapter 3. There was a promise given to Abraham. The law was given. It had a purpose that we'll see. But that had nothing to do with the promise being fulfilled. If we're Abraham's seed, then we are heirs. Heirs. And in chapter 4, at the beginning of the chapter 4, the first few verses there, he says, you might be heirs. But he's telling us, and this is what we're going to look at first. At one time, we were slaves. So look what he says here in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. And he says, now I say that the heir, as he says we're heirs, but he says the heir, as long as he's a child, doesn't differ at all from what? From a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed. So he uses an example. He uses an illustration here, Paul does, in these first two verses of a young child who's in line to inherit a large estate. He's got a fortune coming in his way, but he said while he's still a minor, while he's still a young child, he's under the control of guardians and stewards. And a lot of times those guardians and stewards could be cruel and demanding. So he's saying, <laughs> even though one day this boy is going to have great power, wealth, position, and respect, but until that time appointed by the father, he has to submit to these slaves. They generally were slaves that were appointed as guardians. And he's got to submit to them no matter how they treat him. And these are the ones that one day it's all going to be reversed and he's going to be ordering them around. But he's saying while he's a child, he's no better off than a slave. And that was us at one time. So who were we slaves to? Or another way of saying that, what form did our slavery exist? It's right here in Galatians. We were slaves Paul says to the law, it kept us as prisoners. Look back in chapter 3, look in verses 23 to 25. He says, before faith came, we were kept under guard. By what? By the law. Kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Now, that word for tutor in the Greek is a Greek word, pedagogos. And what it means is a boy leader is the way it's described in the Greek dictionary. So it's the man who was, like I said, it was usually a slave whose duty it was to conduct the boy, to lead him to and from school, and basically just to watch over his conduct in general. And he wasn't a tutor like we think a tutor is somebody that teaches somebody. It's, he's not a tutor like that. He wasn't a teacher. He's just somebody that had oversight of this kid to make sure he got safely to and from school and had good manners, basically. But when the young man, it says, became of age, then this pedagogue was no longer needed. 
And he's telling us here the Jews, really all of us in a sense, were under the pedagogos, the law, until when? Until the fullness of time came when the Father sent his Son. And then it says that tutor was no longer needed. So what was the function of the law, the tutor, in the lives of Israel and really in all people's lives? We're going to talk about four functions briefly. And one of the functions of this law was that it revealed what sin is. So all of us have the law written on our conscience, the Bible says, but through sin, it becomes marred. We can have a defiled conscience. We can have a hardened conscience. But when the law is applied by the Spirit of God, it breaks through all of that. And that's how conviction comes to a person. They can be going along thinking life is whatever, and you bring the law to bear on their conscience, and their conscience is telling them, you're guilty, you're in trouble, you've got judgment coming your way. That's the whole purpose of it. So it reveals what sin is. Romans 7, 7, Paul says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? The law is not sin. He says, certainly not. On the contrary, he says, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law is said, you shall not covet. And that's why I agree with Ray Comforter. You want to properly use evangelism however you want to do it. You don't have to necessarily do his method. But the law, and this is the way evangelism was done for centuries, up until the 19th century when D.L. Moody kind of turned things upside down. And he at one point did preach the law as an evangelist. That's the way it was done. And all of a sudden, he and his older years changed, and now it's all the love of God is the emphasis. Up to this day, they still, they'll tend to mock when you preach hellfire, brimstone, fear of God, and all that, and preach the law. But you're defeating the purpose of the law. The law, Paul said, I wouldn't have known covetousness. That's how I was convicted that something wasn't right in my life, by the law. Hey, you have to use wisdom in doing all that, obviously. The second use is people tell you that they are good people. They will, and they just make mistakes. And the law, though, makes it clear that people were rebels against the Lord. It makes it clear and deserve hell. Romans 3, Paul says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, Why? That every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. So, I mean, I've talked, told you this before, but there are times you witness to people in prison, on the streets, or wherever. Are you a good person? They all start off saying they're a good person. Yeah, I do a few things here and there, but I'm a good person. Almost everybody says that, right? And then you bring the law in however you do, and at the end, they are no longer a good person. They know it, and that's what he's saying here. It, it says every mouth will be stopped. Nobody's going to be justifying themselves anymore, and definitely not on the day of judgment. Every mouth will be stopped, and all the world will become guilty. The third thing that the law makes clear is that the wages of sin is death. Paul says this in Romans 7, I was alive once with the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, he said, I found to bring death. So it shows us that too, that the wages of sin is death. And the fourth thing, the reason God had the law in Israel for all those years to bring us to Christ is because to show us he's given them a perfect law, didn't he? The law, he said, there's nothing wrong with the law. So you've got all these religions in the world, and yet Israel had the perfect religion, holy, just, and good. They were given the law. And they swore in Exodus 24, 
God gives them that law that he spoke, his voice came from that mountain to where they trembled and they're like, Moses, you talk to him. We we come and talk to him. We're scared of him. He gave them that law and says, if you'll keep my law, I'll be with you. I'll bless you. Oh, they swore on a blood oath they would, didn't they? Oh, we'll do everything it says. They couldn't go 10 miles and they were breaking the law, weren't they? He finally, they broke the law so much, wouldn't listen to the prophets, wouldn't repent. They finally had to judge the nation and they're scattered to the four winds, weren't they? And what's the purpose of that? You would even have godly kings, but they all would fall, wouldn't they? The purpose of that is show that the, the law itself and keeping the law, having good works and all, will never bring you salvation to, before the Lord. That's what else the law shows us. We're sinners. We're in need of help. We're desperate. It can't save. It can only condemn. That's what he says here. He says that an heir, as long as he is a child, doesn't differ at all from a slave, though he's a master, but he's under guardians and stewards until the time appointed. So we are in bondage and slave to the law. Its only purpose is to show our need for Christ, to bring us to Christ, to bring us and cast us at his feet so we can trust him. He's got everything we need. That's why Paul's on these Galatians. How can you be so foolish? Who has bewitched you? You think somehow doing these things is going to make you right with God? You should know better than that. You didn't get the Holy Spirit that way. You didn't get a changed nature that way. It all came by faith and through the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ. John Wesley and his brother Charles, they were students at Oxford University in England. And while they were there, they started this group called the Holy Club. And during this time, the club was up and running. And those of you who know about George Whitfield, he's a famous evangelist, started the Great Awakening on the East Coast back in the 1700s. Tremendous evangelist. He became friends with them and joined their group. John and Charles Wesley, they were sons of a preacher, very religious in their personal lives and their practice. And externally, on the outward, this holy club, these people were blameless holy men. Just to look at what they did. They would visit prisons. They would help the poor. They took pity on slum children. They would feed them, clothe them, make sure they got an education. They especially had mercy on orphans because there was a lot of them in England at the time. And they would strictly observe the Sabbath and Sunday. Threw them both in there. Now you weren't going to find them playing cards and going and watching the play on Sunday. They would fast all the time read their Bibles, give alms to the poor, and give to the church. They would pray often. They were truly the Holy Club. That's what they were. In fact, George Whitfield, he became so emaciated from the fasting he would do, trying to gain favor with God, he nearly died. And God had mercy on him first and showed him what true faith in Christ was through a book by a Henry Scogel, The Life of God and the Soul of Man. It's a famous book. He read that and the light clicked on for George Whitfield before John and Charles Wesley. John Wesley, one thing that helped him out, he realized there's something wasn't right, is he went on one of his little mercy orphanage trips doing more good works, went on a ship over to America, went over there with some Moravians. They come back and they get in a storm where they knew that boat was going to be gone and they're going to die. He was scared to death. He noticed these Moravians just have, they're just peaceful as can be. And they're like, well, if this ship goes down, we know where we'll be. And he realized the terror that was in his heart that he didn't have that assurance. Went back and told a pastor, a friend, I just don't know that I'm a Christian. 
I don't know that I have faith, truly have faith. I'm, I'm not like these people. I need to quit preaching. And the guy says, no, you keep preaching faith. Because others need to hear it and you need to hear it yourself. And he was, had the famous story goes, he was in Aldergate Street, hearing a message on, I believe it was Romans or Galatians, something, it was, a, I think, a message that was read by uh, Luther's. And he said his heart was strangely warmed. And God gave him that assurance. And from there on out, he knew the light came on for him too. And then later for his brother Charles. So God had mercy on all three of these men whom he used mightily. But they came to see that their faith wasn't in Christ, his righteousness, but in their works. And Wesley said this, looking back, he said, we were bound in the chains of our own self-righteousness and not fully trusting Christ. And he said this, he says, I had the faith of a slave and not of a son because he was a slave to the law. And it's a cruel and brutal taskmaster. You can never do enough when you're trying to measure what you do and, and trying to constantly do all these things. You'll never do enough. It is a fear that's there that's a bondage. And that's the question we need to ask ourselves. Is our Christianity a burden, a bondage? Are we the elder brother? Lord, I've done all these things for you. You haven't done anything for me. You never give me a fatted calf or throw a party for me, Lord. I've done all these things. That was the attitude of the elder brother. But how else does Paul say that we're slaves? When he says here, look in verse 3, he says, Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. Oh, that's kind of a funny expression, and actually it causes a lot of problem with these guys writing these commentaries on what exactly that means. Because as elements of the world, he's saying that Galatians were in bondage to him. Well, sometimes you compare Scripture to Scripture, it helps. In, in Colossians 2.8, it tells us there, you can read it on your own, that elements of the world refers to worldly philosophy, traditions of men. He says later in that same chapter in Colossians 2 that it refers to man-made religion that would cause men to neglect their body. Just like Wesley did. This religion that is this legalism. If you do these things, if you taste not, touch not, handle not, if you put all these things away from you, it'll somehow make you holy. There's a lot of religions like that, aren't there? It could be true for someone that's trying to be a Christian, going to the extreme. And what's driving? What's the motivation? Who inspires all these false religions? Whether it's under the name of Christianity or some other cult and these philosophies. Well, we have an answer here down. If you look in verse 8 in Galatians 4, Paul says, Then indeed, when you did not know God, so this is before you were a Christian, you served those which by nature are not God's. But now, after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? So he's saying, who would this be? Who, those which by nature are not gods. He's talking about demons. Demons are behind all these false religions. Paul talks in Timothy about that there in the last days there will be those that give heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines, teachings of Demons. So those are the teachings that are going to bring men into bondage. That's what he says can happen. That's how we can be in slavery. And he's saying, so before we were Christians, we were indeed in bondage, slavery to demonic powers, weren't we? I mean, the Bible clearly says that. I don't think anybody's going to argue with that. In other words, we were a mess, you and I. We were a mess at the point that God showered his grace in our lives. 
We were, as Hillary Clinton said during the election, we were the true deplorables, if you want to put it that way. That's who God's adopted. Most people, <laughs> they're considering adoption. They want a child that's healthy, free of any major defects, good looking. In the Roman culture, they would investigate and look at the family background. And God, when he chooses his children, he ignores all of that and chooses the worst of the lot. That's what it says. First Corinthians one. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen whom? The foolish things of the world. Why? To put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world. Why? To put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world, the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. Why did he do all that? He says, so that no flesh will glory in his presence. So if you think, as we said so many times, that God chose you because there's something likable, nice about you, you were just somebody who should have been picked all along, you're crazy. That's not what the Bible says. There was absolutely nothing in anyone in here in fact, totally the opposite if you truly believe what the Bible says. Nothing at all in anyone that would cause God to choose us. If you can bear with me with another quote. I know I've given a couple quotes today, but can't say it any better than the great Charles Spurgeon said it. He said this, he says, Above all contradiction and controversy, that great and glorious act whereby God makes us of his family and unites us to Jesus Christ as our covenant head, that so we may be his children, is an act of pure grace. It would have been an act of sovereign grace if God had adopted someone out of the best of families. But in this case, he has adopted, speaking of us, he has adopted one who was a child of a rebel. We are by nature the children of one who was charged and convicted of high treason. We are all the heirs and are born into the world, the natural heirs of one who sinned against his maker, who was a rebel against his Lord. Yet, Spurgeon says, mark this, notwithstanding the evil of our parentage, born of a thief who stole the fruit from his master's garden, notwithstanding the evil of our parentage, that we were born of a proud traitor who dared to rebel against his God. Notwithstanding all that, he says, God has put us into the family. And he says, with what gratitude should we remember that? That though we were of the very lowest original stock, grace has put us into the number of the Savior's family. Let us all give thanks to the free grace which overlooked the whole of the pit from whence we were digged and put us among the chosen people of the living God. He's saying, in Rome, if they'd have looked at the background of us, if God had done what they would do in Rome before they adopted somebody, and he's talking about Adam. I thought that was kind of funny. He said, this guy's a thief. He stole fruit in the garden. A rebel and all that. He said, he looked at our background, our great, 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 great granddaddy Adam would have had nothing to do with us. He went on to say this again. Let us not think only of our original lineage, but of our personal character. He who knows himself will never think that he had much to recommend himself to God. In other cases of adoption, there usually is some recommendation. 
A man, when he adopts his child, sometimes is moved thereto by its extraordinary beauty or at other times by its intelligent manners and winning disposition. But, beloved, when God passed by the field in which we were lying, he saw no tears in our eyes until he put them there himself. He saw no contrition in us until he had given us repentance. And there was no beauty in us that could induce him to adopt us. On the contrary, we were everything that was repulsive. And if he had said when he passed by, you are cursed, be lost forever, it would have been nothing but what we might have expected from a God who had been so long provoked and whose majesty had been so terribly insulted. But no, he found a rebellious child, a filthy, frightful, ugly child. He took it to his bosom and said, black though thou art, thou art comely in my eyes through my son Jesus. Unworthy though you are, yet I cover thee with his robe and in thy brother's garments. I accept thee. And taking us all unholy and unclean, just as we were, he took us to be his. His children, his forever. I think that's pretty well said. Because I don't care if you grew up in this church or not. If you've never seen that your heart is black and filthy and you're a rebel against the Lord. If you've never seen that, you haven't seen what you need to see. Because sometimes you'd be a Christian 30 years. I don't like to dwell on what I did in the past, but I couldn't have been a darker, blacker person. Not in my innermost thoughts. Everybody wasn't seeing it all the time, but it was there. And I knew he died on the cross. I knew if I repented, he went, I didn't care. It's like, I'll get around to it when I want to. That was my attitude. But until that time, I'm going to do what I want to do. You're not going to tell me what to do. That was my attitude. Till he tapped me on the shoulder one day, hey, it just might be too late, Mr. Arrogant. You might not make it to 40 years old and get your life right. Probably wouldn't have made it that long. And that put a fear in my heart. That just came to me just black and white, clear as a bell. I was in danger playing Russian roulette with my soul every day I woke up. So here's the good news about all this with what Spurgeon's saying. Are you a, somebody that considers yourself a social misfit? Somebody that's rejected by men? People just don't seem to like you too well? well lift up your head because the Bible clearly teaches that God is after the rejects. He's on the lookout for them. It's people that he's going to have mercy on. That's the way it is. From Rahab to Ruth to right on down the line. The Philippian jailer. Paul, the chief of sinners. And here's what Deuteronomy 7 says, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. He says, though the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than other people, for you were the least of all peoples, but because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers. And in other places, he tells Israel, I didn't choose you because you were a righteous people. You were anything but that. You're nothing but a bunch of rebels. That's not why he chosen. Why did he choose us then? Why did he choose you and me? The simple answer is because he loved you. And you say, why me? I would say, why you? And the thing is, I can't answer that because the Bible doesn't answer that. 
It's not because we were cute and kind and fluffy. It just was the opposite. So why he picked us, I, mean, I don't know. But it says he set his love on us. We'll see next time. Not just at some point in, after we were born, but from all eternity before he created anything. You are elected to be adopted as his child. That's what the Bible teaches. And here's the thing, I think, because we know that we've been a prodigal, whether before or sometimes after we've become saved, we have a hard time accepting that God loves us. But I would say if we know that we have truly repented, truly repented, we don't have to doubt his love, do we? The prodigal came to the father, returned back to the father. He's in the dust. Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight am no longer worthy to be called your son. And that's the right attitude to have, isn't it? We should forever have that attitude, but we also need to accept the Father's love and forgiveness, don't we, when we come back that way. Sinclair Ferguson said this, as we fix our eyes upon ourselves, our past failures, our present guilt, it seems impossible to us that the Father could love us. Some people in here may have failed in a major big way. A major big way, or it could be all the little ways, like we talked about the little foxes or the big foxes. And we look at that and we're thinking, how could God love us? That's what he's saying here. Many Christians, he says, go through much of their life with the prodigal's suspicion. Their concentration is upon their sins and failure. All their thoughts are introspective. And that is why John's statement about the Father's love begins with a word calling us to lift up our eyes from ourselves and take a long look at what God has done. Behold, isn't that what it says? Look and see that the love the Father has lavished upon us. Paul includes himself in there that we should be called the sons of God. Him and Peter and his guys were rough fishermen. They were rough guys. They were nasty. And yet he called them and they knew it. You read 1 Peter, he's a party animal in his day. But can we have trouble believing that God loves us, accepts us back? William Booth and his wife, they established a Salvation Army. And actually, man, there was a power. God was working through that ministry. It's not like today. But back then, it was powerful. And much of their ministry was to the dregs, the deplorables of the London society. Drunks, prostitutes, those in prison. Basically, they ministered to the down and out. In a big time way, it got a lot of results. And one of their daughters, she was seventh in the line. They had a lot of kids. Her name was Evangeline, and she would go into the women's prison frequently. I've heard Paris Reed tell this story. When there was one woman prisoner in there, when she would go in and she stood out from the crowd. She was nasty. She was mean. She smelled like a skunk, and she had a face. Boy, he described it. She had a face that not even her mother could love. That's just the way she was, and. Evangel would go to her and she would tell her, that woman, Evangeline, that Christ loved her and died, that she could know the love of a heavenly father. And that woman would just spit at her and curse her out. But she didn't give up. Evangeline didn't give up on her, spoke kindly to her, despite all the hatred that that woman gave her. And one day she went in there and this woman screamed at her and she says, you don't love me. She says, no one ever has. You speak of the love of Jesus, but you could never find it in yourself to hug the likes of me. And Evangeline's like, that's the last thing she really wanted to do. But 
She went in there, walked in her cell, and gave that woman a warm embrace and kissed her on her forehead. And that woman just broke down weeping. And she said, maybe he does love me. Maybe he could love the likes of me. She was converted. And her conversion had a major impact on that prison that Evangeline went into. And maybe some people struggling, like, how could God put his arms and love me like that? Like the father. So like that woman, what we're seeing today, the point of today is we were once unclean prisoners. Bound to sin, the devil, the law condemned us. We were putrid. But God, he sent his son. He sent his love, his only begotten son, to rescue us. Why? That we could be part of his family. That woman in prison didn't have, her mother, she never had any affection showed her. Didn't know what affection was. Couldn't believe anybody would want to show it to her. And that's the way of the world a lot of times, isn't it? And yet, we're accepted into God's family and he does bestow his love on us. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. And John goes on to say in chapter 4, we have known and believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. Amen? We're going to look at the who, what, when, why of adoption, and today we looked at the who that God has adopted, and we said that that is the weak, the base, the foolish, and the despised, and we could be thankful for that because that means we're all qualified. <laughs> Amen. Let's pray. And Father, we thank you once again for your word and for manifesting what true love is to us, Lord, and, and that we should be called your children, adopted into your family, Lord, that you overlooked all that what we did, Lord, and showered your love and your grace on us and changed our hearts, brought us to repentance. And I just ask, Lord, that through that we'll be motivated that you're our Father, that we'll be holy as you are holy, and that you can be proud of us as your sons and daughters. And I just ask that you'll speak to all of us today, Lord, and to be with us all, and that we not forget you as the day goes on. I just raise our hearts in thankfulness to you, and we do all this and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.